Good morning. My name is Chris, uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and so thankful that you are here this morning. And for those of you joining us online, glad that you're with us too. Maybe cozy it up with a nice warm blanket. We're glad you're here too. Um, just feel like we need a collective inhale and exhale. Um, maybe you've had a week like I have. And so I just want to encourage you to do something that you normally do, probably too frequently and too rapidly. Um, so I just want to invite you just for a moment uh, just to let that time of worship just settle in and, um, and just breathe. Just slowly inhale, slowly exhale. Just rest. do that. So thankful that you're here. Today we continue on in our series, You Are Not Your Own, and we have been cruising along, and Nick joked with the first service that was gathered here, is, well, he didn't joke about this part, is we are covering Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament all the way to Malachi. Um, so yeah, what? I heard that, whoever that was. So that's what we're covering in the next eight hours that we're here. So hopefully you brought a picnic lunch. You can just spread out your blanket, put your food down on the floor, have some food while we talk. Uh, no, we are going to fly through Scripture this morning, and I'm going to give you a very quick overview of the Old Testament. And for some of you, uh, this may be really helpful just to see this big picture almost in fast forward, because what it is is it's the same happening again and again and again and again, and we get to the old, end of the Old Testament where we'll leave it today and we'll be like, oh, what is going to happen next? I mean, we know what happens next, but we're going to leave it there, and it's going to sit. But there's this cycle that goes on again and again. And really, this theme that we've been looking at is that we are not our own. And it comes from a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, and he said to them, you're not your own. You've been bought at a price, and you're valuable. Is that you, for those of you who have aligned your life with Jesus Christ, who are following in his ways and his teachings and and you're, you're working at that, uh, none of us reach this like pinnacle of like, uh, we're just like Jesus, but we're striving towards that. And we all fall short, and we just get back up, and we, we keep walking, uh, trying to understand what it means to be like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to really love the people around us, to care for the world, to, to walk in his ways. And when we align our lives with Jesus, we're reminded by this passage is that we're not our own. There's a greater calling than just you know, the health, wealth, and happiness. There's a greater um, identity that you can find as a follower of Jesus than anything you're going to find within yourself or any other label anyone puts on you. This is what we're walking toward, this, and looking at this arching narrative, this grand narrative through six different movements of Scripture. And so hopefully this is helpful to you to get an idea of, of why we have this collection of writing. And we started week one talking about creation in Genesis 1 and 2 how there was chaos. and this beginning, there's a, a number of different words that were used of darkness and water, and uh, the world was, uh, it was just uninhabitable, uninhabitable. And God brought order into that chaos through the creation narrative. Every day, there's something that was chaotic, and then he brought order into it. Chaos and order, chaos and order. And he said it was good after each day, and then he got done, and he was like, it's really good. God was really proud of himself. And it, there's this order that was there that it changed what could happen. 
Last week, we looked at really movement two, which is the fall. And this is Genesis 3 through 11. There's a tempter in the garden, the narrative tells us, and there's this tree that they're not supposed to uh, eat from, but God says, hey, it's good the way it is. There's order. But he gives humans the ability to choose on their own, and the humans redefine what God said was good, and they insert their own good, which is what we do all the time, is God said this, and I want to align my life with Christ, but I still think that I know a little bit better, so I'm going to do it my way. Maybe it's an attitude, an action, something we say. And so we do this again and again and again, and this is the story of humanity, is this repeating of falling into the temptation that we're set before us, that this question of, is God really good in what he said? Is it really that important to follow after? And so in the narrative, it went from chaos before creation to order, and then after sin, after the fall, back to chaos. But God doesn't give up. God continues to pursue humanity, even though, as we see in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way through 11, is this downward spiral, uh, things falling apart, this continual wickedness in the world. And we come to the end of chapter 11 saying, how is God going to put this back together? Is God just going to give up once again, like recreate again? Is he going to give up? Is there hope? How is this going to happen? So I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. And the part we're going to be looking at will be on the screen behind us as well. But Genesis chapter 12, God again turns to humanity. And he wants to work through humanity. He pursues them. God loves creation. He loves us. And as we're going to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is the same cycle of order to chaos. And then back to order and again and again. In the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, if you are the type that likes to write in your Bible, I would somehow highlight these three verses if they're not highlighted already. These are uh, such important verses in the whole of Scripture. There is the heart of God here. There is direction. The whole trajectory of humanity after this comes off of these three verses. And so the Lord is speaking to Abram, and this is what it says in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, in your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses, I will curse. All right, so in this passage, these three verses, Abram has one job, one thing to obey. What is that one thing? Go, yes, thank you. It says go, like that's the job, go. That is Abram's part. And then after that, it's all God. This is really a theocentric passage, meaning that it's about God's action, God's movement, God's direction. Because look through this again here. In verse one, Abram's to go. God will give him where he's gonna go. He's gonna make him into a great nation. He's gonna bless him. He's gonna make his name great. He's gonna bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him. And there's this movement, it's God's activity, but it's that first step, right, which is always the hardest, that first step. Quick survey of the room here. When you have an opportunity before you, how many of you are the type that just jump at opportunities, or how many of you are the, the kind of the yield, wait, and watch? So how many of you are jump at opportunities, you just get at it, right at it, right at it? I would expect hands going up faster for this group of people. I was a little slow. But okay, so how many of you just kind of watch and pay attention and um, yep, 
How many of you did not hear my question at all and don't want to raise your hand at all? To be honest, thank you. I, I appreciate some honesty there in the room. Yeah, there's different types of personality, right? Because you look at this and you say, Abram, just go. It's obvious you're going to be a blessing. You're going to be blessed. Just leave everything you've known. Just go. It's easy until it's you, right? It's easy until God tells you to do something, tells me to do something. I mean, we have these different personalities, and I have these personalities in my household. I think back to when my kids were younger. I have one child who, uh, the lake, the dock, this child would go running down the side yard, screaming, run out on the dock, and just jump right into the water. As we were chasing, saying, you don't know how to swim. And then there's another child that we have that would walk out on the, the dock, gently, looking at the edge. Go ahead and jump. You have, you have your life jacket on. It's okay. And we're in the water saying, you can jump. We're here. We'll hold your hand. Come to us. 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes of persuasion only on to the next day again and again and again. Even calling my sister, whom this child loves and wants to be like, did not even trust this child's aunt. If you know my family, you know which kids I'm talking about. And one of them has a red face in the front row right now. She gave permission to share that, so whichever child she is. But it's obvious, right? Like, just jump in the water. Just do it. Abram, just go. But it's hard. It is hard for us to be that one just to jump in. We respond to these situations so differently. And Genesis 12 is not just about overcoming fear of Abram going, but really about how God is recreating once again with Genesis chapter 12. That Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament theologian, he said that this is a second creation account. It's a second creation account. That God is taking what is broken, what is chaos, what is out of order and bringing order back to it. There's a beauty in this passage. And there's an individual who doesn't want fame, doesn't want a name. He just wants to be. Look back if you have the Bible, your Bible open to Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. This is a story where humanity is like, we are awesome. We are great. We have figured out how to build bricks. We're going to create this tower. We're going to do these great things. Even though God had twice already said, spread out. Don't stay in one place. Look at verse 4 of Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So what they're saying is like, we need to stay together. We need to make a name. We need to have a place. We need to build this tower. So God will say, hey, even though I told you to move, spread out, what you did was actually better. Good job. I'm so proud of you. That's what they were thinking. They thought they were doing good outside of God's own good. But this was disobedience, and God scattered them because it wasn't about them. It wasn't that they were their own. Like, we think we are our own. And so in verse 12, there's three things that Abram is promised. And we're going to come back to these multiple times in the next number of minutes. There's a promise of land. God said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a nation. There's going to be a lot of you. And my presence will go with you. And as we read through Genesis, we see Abram's family, also known as Abraham, his family grow, and his family is flawed, just like me, just like you. But God is faithful, and he continues on. 
And we get to the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, and we see that the people, there's a lot of them, but they're enslaved. So if we were to go through this checklist at the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Exodus, the second book of the Bible, do they have land of their own? No. In fact, they're in Egypt. They're enslaved. Are they a nation? There's a lot of people, but there's not a core identity, so no. And then is God's presence with them? Well, yeah, we can make that argument, but they were enslaved, so they didn't really feel like God was with them. So it doesn't look like Abram, Abraham, at the end of his life, these blessings have come through. But God was not done. God sent a deliverer named Moses. And Moses set the Israelites free from Egypt. But they're now in the desert. They're wandering. They're walking. And there's this season. And God gives them instructions. God gives them direction. Because these are the things to do. These are the things not to do. This is how to have life. This is how to not have life. And oh yeah, I want you to build a tabernacle where I can be with you. You're to believe and to trust me. But just like humans throughout the whole of history, they rebelled. And so we go back to our list here of our three items that God had said was going to bless Abram with. Land. They're in a desert. Not really the land that they were promised or wanted. Still a lot of people, but they're not a nation. They don't have an identity. God is with them, right? He's tabernacling with them. There's this pillar of cloud that he's going with them and giving them direction. So one of the three already into the second book of the Bible long after Abraham's life. So we fast forward again. We get to the promised land, this land that God had promised to give. We have this story where there's 12 spies, and the 12 spies go in, and they look at this promised land, and they come back, and they're like, it is awesome. There is flowing with milk and honey. And 10 of them are like, hold on, though. Really big people. And even though God said that he's going to give us this land, and he's going to work through us, and God said we can trust him, we don't trust him. And Joshua and Caleb say, we need to do it. This is what God said. And the people start to grumble, and they say, we want to go back and be enslaved. God appears to Moses, and there's this really interesting conversation that takes place where God is just fed up, and he says, you know what, Moses? I'm going to send a plague, and I'm going to wipe out all the people. Moses, don't worry. You're good. I'm going to restart with you, just like I restarted with, or started with Adam and Eve, and started with Noah, and then started with Abraham. I'm going to restart with you, and I'm going to wipe all these people out because I'm frustrated. Moses said, but remember your promises. Remember who you are. Remember that you're faithful. So God says, okay. But he said, this entire generation will not see the promised land, will not go in. So fast forward again. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died. Joshua is now leading the people. So we go through our checklist again. He leads them into the promised land. They're there in the promised land. So our checklist. They're in the land. Check. A nation. They're a large people. They have land. They have an identity. Check. God has led them into the promised land. Check. So all three of these have checked. So it seems like the blessing that God said to Abram has been complete. And they lived happily ever after, right? They're all good. Not even close. We see in the book of judges that these leaders, these judges come along, and what it says is that they do what is right in their own eyes. And they worship the gods of the Canaanites, the, the land that they're in. And like we see in Genesis 3 through 11, there's this downward spiral again. It's a corruption of sin, of wickedness. Going to 1 Samuel, and Samuel becomes less judge and priest, 
And he reminds the people, saying, all the nations around you have kings, but remember, you have God as king. He is the ultimate king. And the people say, that's great, but we want to do it our own way. We want to do what is good in our own eyes, what is best for us. So Samuel, we need a king. And God relents, and he says, all right, fine. You can have a king. And so Saul becomes king, and then eventually there's a shepherd named David who is anointed as king. And David becomes king of Israel. David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple, a place where God would be, a place where the people could go and see God in the land as a nation. But once again, it looks like Eden has been restored. It looks like things are really well. Think of the land, this permanent place, the temple, presence of God, the nation, they're there. Once again, it looks like there is order where there was chaos. But it doesn't last long again. Solomon and Solomon's wives introduce the worship of foreign gods. And they start to turn from the one and only God. Judgment comes through political unrest and the nation divides the north of Israel, south of Judah. Both are being led by corrupt kings who turn from God and soon they're exiled from the land. The temple's destroyed. So we go back through our checklist again. Land, it was once theirs. They're exiled. Nation, they're scattered. And the presence of God seems to be gone because the temple is gone and the people are scattered. Chaos is returned. You see the cycle of chaos to order, chaos to order, and God consistently working through his people. And at this time, many of the prophets are speaking and writing they're saying one day Israel will be back in the land, and they said there will come one who has healing in his wings, who will be light shown into the darkness. And for 400 years, there's silence. One of my old Bibles, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, on the blank page there, I just wrote 400 years of silence. Because the people heard nothing new from God. They looked back at the prophecies, the things that had been said, and holding on to the hope that one day there would be one that would come that would rescue them, that would rescue them out of the chaos they were living in. And then there was a stirring. There were stories told of a virgin giving birth to a child in the town of Bethlehem, much like the prophets had written about. There was a stirring that the Messiah had come, God incarnate, and was named Jesus because he would save the people from their sin. This conversation, this hope, this chaos seemed to be taking order once again. But when I look at this story and I, I see this just chaos to order to chaos to order again and again, is why don't I look back and I'm like, why did God send Jesus back here? Wouldn't that have been easier? Somehow drop salvation into the picture where they could have just grabbed it and not had to go through all these cycles again and again. Well, how true is it of us since we've had Jesus, how we continue to go through these cycles of chaos and then we bring order and chaos and order and what I'm talking about is personally, right? Because I follow God's good and then I define my own good and I'm like, oh, I need to repent, go back to God's good. Do that for a while and then I bring my own good in. But why did it unfold this way? Well, in Genesis 12, God is a God of promises. God is a faithful God. His promises are true. Scripture says that he is faithful to keep the promises that have been made in Scripture. 
And so God roots it back in Genesis 12, saying, we have been on mission since Genesis 12, all the way through Jesus, all the way to where we are today. But it's not just a promise that's easily broken. It's something about his character, his nature. It's much deeper than a promise. It's really a covenant. It's a binding promise. If you're still in Genesis, or even if you're not, you turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 12, we have these three key verses. But something happens in Genesis 15 that is powerful and forever transforming the world and showing the nature of who God is, that God is good. Genesis 15, I'm going to read in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and there is no one who will inherit my estate? So what he's saying is, do you remember how you promised me land and nation and presence? God, you're not coming through on this. He's impatient just like I am, just like many of you are. God, I prayed for that like five minutes ago. Why didn't you answer it? It's time, God. So Abram, you promised me this. And he asked that question of, can I really trust you, God? Another question we often ask, can I trust you, God? What God does is he says, hey, Abram, I need you to do something. I need you to go get a heifer. I need you to get a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And I need you to bring them back. And then what God says is, he says, I need you to cut them in half. Okay, this is where it gets graphic. Ready? I need you to cut each of them in half. I need you to put... Half here and half here. The next animal, half here, half here. Next animal, half here, half here. I want you to spread this out. At this point, Abram's going, I know what you're doing, God. Many of you here are like, I have no idea what he's doing, right? So what would happen in ancient times is when you had a contract, a binding promise to a covenant, two individuals would come together. You would bring animals, you would cut them in half, and then the two individuals would stand side by side. And you would walk through this bloody mess together. And by walking, you're covenanting whatever you've agreed upon. That you're saying, if I fail to keep my part of this deal, may I become like these animals here cut in half. I am so confident of my word here today. I am covenanting that I would become like them if I fail in my word. Person right here is saying the exact same thing. If I fail on my part of the deal, may I become like these animals right here cut in half. Makes signing a contract look, uh, look really easy, right? I mean, buying a house would be totally different if we had to lay out animals and sign it that way. It's a new thing, Brian. You can work on that. I don't know how that'd go. So this is what's happening. Let's, let's look at this in chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation of your descendants will come back here, 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So let's just pause on this for a moment. So this is all laid out. Abram is ready to walk with God. And God is saying, this is my promise. These are the things that are going to happen. I have promised you land for your descendants. I have promised you uh, to be a nation. I have promised a presence. But Abram, you are not going to see it fulfilled in your lifetime. But I want you to know that I am promising you this. And for some of you here, you need to hear this exact same thing. You have been praying for something. You've been trusting God's promises for something in your family, in generations to come, whatever it may be, that you're praying and praying and praying, and it may not be fulfilled in your lifetime. But that does not mean it will not be fulfilled. Prayer is powerful that it transcends time. I mean, I think back to my grandma who prayed for me for my salvation, that I would be a light for Christ. And I'm praying for my grandkids, not only my kids, my grandkids and my great-grandkids. I mean, there is prayer that transcends time. And this is what's happening. He's saying, you're not going to see this in your lifetime, but it does not mean it's not fulfilled. So I want to encourage you, if you're doubting something, if you're struggling with something, trusting God in some sort of promise, hold on to that. Keep praying for that. Keep praying. Then what happens is, remember, Abram is in a deep sleep here. He needs to wake up because he needs to walk through this, to covenant with God that this would come true, that he would keep his part of the deal so God keep his. But look at verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. What just happened? Abraham's sleeping over here. God says, I recognize that you're human. You are not going to be able to keep your part of the deal. You will fail me. Your descendants will fail me. But I, God, I will pass through this alone, making the covenant. This is my commitment to you. Knowing you will fail. I am passing through because I am good. I am so committed to the promise that I'm making as God. I am committed to saving the world through your family, Abraham. Whether you're faithful or not, I will do it as God. That's what God is saying. That's what God did in that moment. Making this vow. And God is saying, even if I have to send my one and only son, take the sin of the world upon myself, I will do whatever it takes to save the world. This is the commitment God has made. This is his binding covenant type of promise. This is the faithful God we serve. That goes knowing I will fall short, that you will fall short. And he'll lift us right back up to remember me, that I am faithful. In the late 1400s, there was a man named Inigo Lopez de Onaz de Leola. How many of you have heard of him? Same response in first service. He was born into nobility, and he was described this way. This is not one you want in your bio. He's described as successful, wealthy, a fancy dresser, an expert dancer, a womanizer, sensitive to insult, and a rough, punkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes that he committed. Sounds lovely, right? Yeah, yeah. 
He became an officer in the Spanish army in his late teens, early 20s. He was extremely successful. And in one battle, there was a cannonball that ricocheted and some of the debris fell on one of his legs and shattered his leg. As he laid in a hospital bed for the next year, can you imagine the conversations that he was having with others and with himself? Everything that he held as valuable, everything that he had to define himself, was gone as he lay there. You think of those lows? You've been there. While he was bedridden, God began to work on him. And he questioned lots of things and really processed a lot of things. And when he was well enough to leave that hospital, history tells us that he took his sword and he went and he laid it at an altar at a church, leaving that life behind. He took the clothes, his beautiful clothes that he had, and he donated them to anyone that had need. He gave much of it away. And he later became known as Ignatius of Loyola, and some of you may have heard of Ignatius. But the reason I tell you this story is that he is one of so many people throughout history, throughout time, with so many people who sit in this room, who watch online, have had something happen, who have been disappointed, who have made a decision, who have had a decision made around them that's impacted them. And we get into situations where, like the Israelites, we're like, oh, we're here again. And it feels like chaos. I want to remind you that God is not far away. God is a God of order and a God who invites us to order, to, to lean into him, to help him reshape and mold and direct those next one that we can trust. The reason I bring up the story of Ignatius of Loyola is I want to share a prayer that he wrote. And what I want to invite you to do is for the next few minutes is to read the prayer that will be on the screen. Adrian, you can put that up if you would, please. Thank you. As I invite you to read this prayer, maybe you want to pray the entire prayer. Maybe there's a word that sticks out to you that you just want to repeat and pray over or phrase. But I want to invite you to remember his story. Pray over these words. Wherever you're at, whatever is going on, you take a few minutes to read this, reflect on it, meditate on it, pray it, whatever it may be, and then I'll pray.
invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness throughout time. We thank you for your patience. Thank you that you have not given up on humanity from the earliest of days to today. Or that you pursue us with a love that we just cannot describe. Lord, I think of the two words in there of perfect trust. God, I pray that we would be people who trust you, trust what you say. God, who align our lives to, to walk with you. Lord, who humbly surrender before you, knowing that you are the one that strengthens us. You are the one that brings about your power in us. Lord, when worry or fear are near. Father God, I pray that we would see your hand, see your purpose. We would see your will through all things. God, whether these things feel resolved or feel wide open, Lord, that we would see your work. God, I thank you that you are a God of hope, calls us forward. Lord, that you spoke of a, a coming Messiah, and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can have faith in Jesus. We're thankful that we can know Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, by putting our trust in him. And today, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, just for each person here today, that they would pray, God, that I trust you. Trust you, God. Lord, help me in my unbelief. Lord, help me to walk with you, to know your will and your way. God, I trust you. So, Jesus, I thank you for meeting us in this time. We thank you for your word and Lord, how you continue to bring about order because of your faithfulness of who you are. So Jesus, may we be people of peace. May we be people who walk in your love this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.